0: Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Today's teaching is going to be taken out of Philippians 2, verse 3 to 8. Let these words make a home in your heart this morning. So grateful for your presence, and we are so thankful for your scripture.
1: Good morning, <laughs> folks. You're so welcome. If you are a guest or visitor, we hope you feel at home and at ease. Um, Connor, would you grab me some water, please, pal? Thanks a lot. Um, good to see you all. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Andy. I'm part of the team uh, here. And if you are a guest or a visitor, we are in uh, the final couple of weeks. Um, how many of you are relieved? Any of you? Are you like Stop sending me surveys. Um, so um, we're in the, the last kind of Nearly last lap, this week and next week, and we'll be done with this Metrics uh, series. Uh, We've spent the last five weeks uh, really trying to dig into what's going on in the heart and the life of our community, and um, we've really tried to do as much as we can to actually measure that, to get you guys involved and to respond, and uh, we've had over 1,100 surveys filled in. I thought it was pretty cool. You're like, whatever, like, you know, Um, but yeah, I thought it was great. Um, but here's what's really interesting and perhaps slightly predictable is every single week from we started, we've had slightly less. Every single week. And uh, I was kind of, um, if I was going to put money on I was going to bet that the, the the money survey would have been the least answered, but actually it was the second least to last week's, which actually made me think more like you guys are just kind of slowing down. And so listen, we have two weeks left, right? Can I really encourage you to hang in there, fill in the survey this week and next week. If you haven't been getting emails from us with the surveys in them, and I know there are a couple of you in that category, would you please email us and say, send me the survey, please. Uh, this week's weekly email, will have all of the surveys, and uh, our podcasts are now on iTunes and Spotify, so you can listen in the car and all that sort of stuff. So catch up on the talks and fill in the surveys. This whole thing uh, doesn't, and the whole point, this doesn't really work if we don't get a real accurate picture of what's going on. And my fear With this series, is that those of you who feel closest to the center of Lagan Valley Vineyard will be really front footed and fill in all the surveys. But the reality is, for those of you who feel closest to the center and who've been with us the longest, we could probably guess where most of you are in some of that just because of the length of time we've journeyed together. But it's those of you who've just joined more recently in the last couple of years, in the last few months, uh, it's your responses actually that are really, really helpful for us. And so, Uh, Can I really encourage you this week and next week uh, to get on top of the survey, and if you've missed the last five, um, well, you know, wouldn't it just be an amazing night this week, you and your wife and kids, get a bottle of wine for you and the wife, not the kids, and (laughs) sit down and, you know, fill out some surveys, like everyone would love that, right? Kind of kidding, kind of not. Yeah, two two weeks to go, and we're nearly nearly done. I want to start this morning with a question. And uh, I want you to take a couple of minutes and talk about this with someone you've come with, or someone sitting beside you or around you. What in your life holds the most value? Right? So, what in your life holds the most value? We're going to take a couple of minutes, share that with some people sitting around you at the minute, and uh, I'll call you back in, in a second. conversation's going, but second question, okay, second question, what in your life causes you the most stress, okay, what in your life causes you the most stress? Wonderful, wonderful, so just a show show of hands, how how many of you in answering the question about what holds the most value in your life, how many of you said like a a person or some people, wave at me if you said person or people, brilliant, yeah, that's probably most of you, Um, what caused you the most stress in your life, wave at me if you said person or people, how many of you lied because the answer to that question was sitting beside you? <laughs> You're like, um, what holds the most value in my life? Definitely my wife. She's a gift from God to me. What causes me the most stress in my life? Definitely my wife. She is a growth-sending um, <laughs> person from God for me. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, isn't it interesting that the uh, the things that cause us the most value, sorry, cause us uh, add the most value and cause the most stress uh, are often the same. They're often people. Like the reality is, the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the human uh, experience is relationships. They bring us joy and they bring us pain. And you know, the reality is that healthy relationships healthy community is absolutely central to what it means to be the community of Christ. That we are able to do marriage and family and community really, really well. John 13, Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love each other. By this, they will know that you're mine, that you love each other. As I have loved you, So you must love each other, by this everyone will know that you're mine, that you have love for each other. Mikey, throw this slide up there for me. Uh, We've been reflecting on this idea for the past five or six weeks. This is our goal in this community, that together we would learn how to surrender our entire lives to the rule and the reign of Jesus, and that we would learn from him how to demonstrate that rule and reign in our lives, through our lives, and in our communities for the flourishing of everybody. This is the point of the Christian life. If we're trying to surrender our entire lives to the rule and the reign of Jesus and learn how to demonstrate the presence of that rule and reign, then the health of our relationships are absolutely critical and central to how we go about doing this. What's really interesting to me when it comes to uh, our spiritual maturity and how surrendered our lives to Jesus are or is, is the metric of relational health. It's so interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, this is how they will know that you have surrendered your life to my rule and reign. They'll know it by how much Bible you can quote. It's really interesting to me That Jesus doesn't say that this is how they will know that you're mine, by your moral superiority to the messy, broken world around you. He doesn't say that this is how they will know that you're mine, that your lives are all cleaned up and neat and tidy and ordered and without difficulty, problem or mess. He doesn't even say that this is how they will know that you're mine, that you're able to prophesy with accuracy that blows everybody's mind. He doesn't say that this is how they will know that you're mine, that you're able to demonstrate mind-blowing miracles that the world can't understand. No, he says, this is how they will know that you're mine, that your relationships are vibrant, that your love is outstanding that the community within which you find the church can't help but marvel at the health of the relationships in that place that the only explanation for the health would be God must be among them because none of the rest of us can figure out how to do life that way Jesus is the king that all of us long for He's the king that all of us long for. Why? Because coming under his rule and reign only has one thing that it does for us. It produces good fruit in our lives. Coming under the rule and reign of Jesus produces good fruit in our lives. In every area of our lives, especially, especially our relationships. Jesus says we are to forgive those who persecute us and love our enemies. Next time you're in the pub with your mates having a beer, just throw that out as like a good way to do life and see what they say. It's total madness to the world that we live in. And if you see the news story this week of Jordan Pickford, um, goalkeeper in the Premier League, punching somebody in a bar, you got in big trouble for it. And uh, I was driving home from Belfast listening to Talk Sport and they were debating like this moment where he was caught, someone filmed him punching somebody in a bar and he should know better. I think it was early hours of the last Monday. He should know better. He's a professional footballer and all this sort of stuff. But the reality is the guy that he punched said something really nasty about his wife. It's totally understandable, right? You know, if somebody says something really nasty about your wife, that is exactly what you should do, right? And that's manly and the appropriate thing, right? Some of you're like, is this a trick question? <laughs> I don't know where he's going with this. It was really interesting. Every person that called into the radio show was like, well, you know, like the guy said something mean about his wife and that's exactly what you do. What if it wasn't? What if there was another way to live? What if when you experience hate, you didn't have to hate? How could how could How could that happen? What would need to happen in your soul that when you experience wrongdoing, your impulse wasn't wrongdoing? You'd have to be free. Only free people can meet hate with love. Only free people can meet hate with love. And the culture that we live in and the water that we swim in will never encourage you to live that way. I mean, we'll make heroes out of certain people in the past that have lived that way, of course. But you'll not find that at the school gate. You'll not find that in the staff room. You won't find that in the park or in the pub. You'll find meet wrongdoing with wrongdoing. But come under the rule and reign of Jesus and the landscape of your soul and the landscape of your relationships changes. And he calls us to a higher and different path. What is currently going on in the relational landscape of our lives and our city and the world that we live in? I want to geek out on this for just a second or two uh, culturally and land it in Philippians 2. I was in Cork uh, last month and uh, we were talking with this old sage down there. He'd probably be offended if he heard me call him old, but um, anyway, and um, he asked me this question that I've been thinking about for about five or six weeks. He said, "Ali, do you know what Irish people are most afraid of? Do you know what Irish people are most afraid of? And I said, um, no, Tom, please tell me. And this was what he said. He said, Irish people, Irish culture is terrified of being alone, being isolated, being disconnected, being left out. I thought it was a really interesting insight. We perhaps could debate for the rest of the day whether he's right or not. But I definitely think he's on to something. There is a reason for the hospitality that is found on this island. There's a reason why we are known the world over as being the people others love to connect to because that's how we order our lives. There's a reason why we have this impulse to welcome the stranger and invite people into our home. There's a reason why the kettle on and the tea in the pot and the sitting down and the time spent at tables and with mugs. There's a reason for all of this. We long, we long to be connected are we known are we loved is anybody with me it's one of the great gifts that children bless us with isn't it their innocent unfettered and unconditionable love it is so powerful and yet so so fragile and actually I think this fear of isolation or loneliness is um, perhaps seeping out from Ireland and permeating into most of the rest of the Western world. I think we live in a cultural moment that is chronically lonely. It's interesting, isn't it? We're more connected than we've ever been as a human race. And we're more lonely than we've ever been. We see this played out in the wider culture in our obsession with sex. Now, you could argue that we have become more perverse as a culture over the last 20 years Um, You could argue that our obsession with sex has come about as we've freed ourselves from the culture and shackles of religious moralism, or I think the sexual dysfunction of our age is actually fueled by loneliness, a desperation to feel connected to other human beings. As a people, we long for connection, we crave intimacy, and I think one of the things that's interesting is we don't have the faintest clue how to go about nurturing and developing that in a healthy way. And so often we just settle for sex. You see, sex is designed to be an expression of what already is, not a pathway to get there. Sex was designed by God to be an expression of what already is, not a pathway to get there. Sex was designed to be the pinnacle of of commitment and intimacy. And it's impossible to have intimacy without commitment, which is why when we have sex without commitment, you'll not see this in the news and you'll not see it in many TV shows, but the result of that is it produces brokenness inside us. Intimacy and commitment are absolutely linked Many of us consume sex to mask our loneliness in order to do so. And this is the really dangerous part. In order to do so, we have to turn people who are made in the image of God into objects to be used to fuel and feed our own fears and desires. Let me ask you uh, another question What are people for? What are people for? Are people just commodities to be used? You know, that's exactly what reality TV is, right? The commodification of people for your entertainment. That's what it is. I'm not sure anyone would argue that the relational landscape of our culture is thriving. To be honest, though, the commodification of other people isn't all that new. It goes right back as far as Genesis 3, and it's been happening throughout human history in all kinds of different ways. I think the new territory, perhaps, that we're discovering as a culture is not the commodification of others. It is the willingness to commodify ourselves, to participate in a world where we allow institutions and organizations to use us for their own gain, and we willingly participate every single day. It's called social media. When we surrender our sense of self-worth to the number of followers, likes, or comments that buzzes a little rectangular device that lives in our pocket. Forgive me if this is slightly offensive language, but I think it's absolutely true. We allow social media to literally pimp our lives. And we attach our sense of well-being and success and security and self-worth to whatever it tells us. And it produces a franticness in our souls and a confused mind and a fear in our hearts that somehow we're missing out or being left behind. And it is a cancer for our friendships. All the while, our relationships slowly, slowly decay. If you're a parent of a teenager, I really hope that you're thinking deeply about this and perhaps praying harder. Listen, this is not a everyone be afraid of the bogeyman of social media. It's just do you know what's going on? Are you aware of the water that we're swimming in? And are you aware of what it's doing to your heart and your mind and your soul? And most importantly, how are you responding? What are you prioritizing? How often do we find ourselves using others to add value to our lives? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're going, well, I'm not on social media, so yes. (laughs) Winning. I have an Instagram account. I have to apologize to people that request to follow me. It's one of those ones you have to ask for my permission to see my photos. And sometimes I forget. And then eventually, I, like, I have one really good friend, actually, who it took me 18 months to give her permission to see my photos. And she didn't really feel it was appropriate to ask me why I wasn't letting her see my photos. And whenever I finally said yes, she was really angry, because I have never posted a photo. <laughs> <laughs> so she got that little bing of Andy's finally letting you see. she was like, what? This isn't just about social media. We, we live in a relational climate landscape where we so often use others to add value to our lives. And one of the things I absolutely love about God, one of the reasons that I follow Jesus isn't just because I believe that he's real and what he said was true. One of the things that takes me out of the well, you're real, I've met you, therefore I must surrender to a place of you're real, I've met you, I can't wait to surrender, is that God takes the opposite posture to us than the world around us. He is not seeking to use you to add value to his life. He's ordered everything in such a way that his deepest desire is to connect to you and add his value to your life. Most selfless being in the entire cosmos. I wonder if you ever heard people say things like, I just really want to find out where God wants to use me. Or maybe you've prayed prayers like that. God would you just would you just use me? Good luck getting that prayer answered. God has no desire to use you. It's not like us. He has no desire to use you. You're not just some commodity that God can put to work for his own aims or agendas. You're a beloved child created in his image who he longs to partner with in seeing the business of his kingdom come alive around us. And that's a totally different thing. Jesus said, I don't call you servants, I call you my friends. It was really interesting, I think here, particularly in Northern Ireland, we're much more comfortable with servants would actually rather be a servant. Servant doesn't actually get to be involved and a servant has very little responsibility. The servant is just supposed to execute what the master says. That feels much more comfortable and much more safe. God, what do you want me to do? And I will do it. He said, well, what do you think we should do? (laughs) Uh, No, (laughs) I think you're confused. You're God, I'm not. So what do you want me to do? Yeah, I know, but... Love you, to, love you to be involved. Can I tell you about what I'm dreaming of? Can I tell you about what I really care about? What would that look like in your life? Isn't it amazing? God longs to set us free, not control us. He invites us to participate freely in what he is doing. doesn't want to just use us like some commodity. Listen again to the text that Laura read for us this morning. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset everything so that you could find life and that the entire landscape of your life and your family and your community and your city and your region the country that you live in and this entire planet would change that we would learn how to not just see people as things to be used, but rather humans to be valued. This text is kind of simple. This is one of those texts that's not actually that hard to preach. You see, when Paul. And Timothy say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here's what, they, here's what they really mean. Like the original language, here's what it really means. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Like, you know, just think about that for a second, right? Because this is mad. Some of you have teenagers that are thinking about GCSEs or A-levels, right? So what's your, what's your agenda in that moment? How do we help set you up in such a way that you're going to be able to go to university in order to get qualifications that will enable you to make the most money for the rest of your life? Sounds like selfish ambition. But Listen, you've heard me preach about this before. I think one of the curses of this culture is our small-mindedness and our fear of ambition. So it's just not about ambition is bad. It's not about you hoping that your kids have good jobs and are able to provide for their families. But where is the part where we sit down with our 14-year-olds and our 15-year-olds and our 16-year-olds and our 17-year-olds and our 18-year-olds and go, what are you dreaming about and what do you think God is dreaming about? And where could you begin to order your life in such a way that while you go about career planning and qualifications and dreaming about wherever you're going to end up, that right at the heart of that would be purpose beyond profit? Do nothing out of selfish ambition, stop using people for your own agenda stop following people just so they will follow you ever notice that on instagram those of you that are there you get like some randomer follows you and then you're like who is that and you click on their thing and they're like they're followed by like 15,000 people and they follow like 15 you've never heard of them you're like what is going on there basically they're going i'm really important here look at me oh follow back and then they defollow you and it's all kind of weird right some of you are like i have no idea what you're talking about andy Stop thinking that you're better than others. That's such a hard one, isn't it? I <laughs> almost was going to do a joke on you there, but just in case some of you are sleeping and not paying attention or not, I wanted to ask, how many of you think you're better than others? Some people are like, are we responding right now? <laughs> oh, no, wait. <laughs> it's one of those things, right? Like none of us admit to walking around with that. And yet, and yet, We all struggle with that. You know that moment where you see somebody's life is in a total mess and the really horrible truth that none of us ever want to admit is we feel a little better about ourselves. At least it's not that bad. Stop thinking that you're better than others rather in humility. Value others above yourself. Just imagine what that would look like. In humility, value other people above yourself. Imagine if you could put that to work tomorrow, wherever you're going to be. What would that look like? I think humility is one of the misun- most misunderstood virtues in our culture. We think humility is like thinking small or like you know being critical of ourselves. And of course, that is nonsense. This is what humility is. Humility is simply knowing your limits. Humility is is knowing your limits. Humble people never pretend. Humble people never pretend. They have no need for pretense. You ever had that moment where you go to someone's house for dinner? And it's amazing, like amazing. And you go, this food is incredible. And the host or hostess or whoever's made it's gone, that's not. I just threw that together when the reality is they've been slaving over it for hours, panicking that it's not going to turn out in the way that they actually would want, right? That's not humility. It's pretense. Humility is being able to say, thanks, I'm terrible at washing the car. Knowing your limits... It's really interesting, this whole idea of relational health and what Paul's talking about here is valuing others as more important than you, right? So we think that that might look like, well, we just have to run around all day long thinking, how can can I help? How can I help? Where can I serve? Where can I serve? Yes, that is part of it, looking to value others more than you. But equally, relational health and humility is about being able to receive other people's help. It's the bit we suck at. We're terrible at that. No, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Do you want some help with that? No, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I am fine can not believe nobody is helping me. Because <laughs> you know, we, we don't want people to ask, we just want them to do, right? Relational health is as much about being able to offer help as it is about being able to receive it. It is that sweet spot where you know your limits. And you're able to receive the love and care of others whilst you order your life around trying to love and care for others. That is how our relationships become healthy. In your relationships, Paul says, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, that you would give up everything for the other. In your relationships, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. That's a equally supernatural thing as it is a practiced thing, as is so often the case with God. That He breaks into our lives and releases something, and invites us to learn how to practice something. So you're like, right, okay, I'm in. God, I want to value other people much as you do and you're driving home and some absolute idiot cuts you off in the car you're like what are you doing i've just been trying to think about being nice and kind and forgiving and loving and you're driving like a complete idiot like yeah that's your moment of practice so easy, isn't it? We're going to have a moment in here and we're going to share communion we're going to reflect we're going to pray. You're going to be like, yes, God, I'm in. I want my relationships to become healthy and tomorrow you're going to crash full steam into that family member that does your head in. It's a supernatural thing and it is a practiced thing. And Finally, when we think about the mindset of Jesus and our relationships, if there was a higher agenda on Jesus' mind than that of forgiveness, I'm not sure what it was. That he claimed to declare the forgiveness of God is available to us. What would it look like for the atmosphere of your heart when it comes to your relationships to be as ready as Jesus is to forgive? That that's your posture. I'm looking for opportunities to forgive rather than what can so often be our default is we are looking for opportunities to be offended we're looking for opportunities and moments to forgive we uh, moved to the country last summer and uh, we're in that time of year where just seems like every farmer's spring slurry everywhere and our kids constantly in the car like what's that smell it's a slightly agricultural metaphor, but it's absolutely true. Forgiveness is like fertilizer in your relationships. Sometimes it stinks, but without it, nothing grows. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes you might feel like you need to hold your nose. But without it, nothing, absolutely nothing grows. This is how, this is how they will know that you're mine. That the health of your relationships can be explained in no other way than that God is among you. This is such serious, serious stuff. One of my deepest fears, and I talk about this with Dana and uh, close friends all the time, is that My reputation would get better the further away from me you get. And sadly, that's really true in the world of church and church leaders. That those that sit in rooms like this, that aren't up close and personal, think, that guy's amazing. Just loves God so much. Seems to love his family so much. And yet, under the bonnet, if you ask those that are closest, it's perhaps not that picture. I'm committed more than anything else to allow Jesus to form vibrant, healthy relationships around us. And in our family, that can get a little bit loud sometimes because we're committed to working things out, right? But I wonder what would that look like for you and your family, that the relational landscape became vibrant, healthy and whole that conflicts that have been running for years would get resolved as Jesus begins to do a work in you. That's hard, isn't it? Like we really want the Lord to do the work in everyone else. As soon as he apologizes, I'm ready, Lord. As soon as she admits that that was really wrong, well, you know, then we can then we could move forward. What kind of work of God would have to happen in your heart or your soul for you to be able to say, I'm going to reconcile that relationship regardless of if they ever admit fault or apologize. In order for us to become the kind of community that we're dreaming about, we have to take seriously the relational health of our lives. James, why don't you guys come on back up. We're gonna respond in a minute with uh, by sharing communion together. And one of the things I love about communion is it's it's that moment where we remember. It's that moment where we remember what God has done for us in order for us to be reconciled to him. And you see, here's the thing, that reconciliation with God produces something through our lives that relational health and spiritual health are absolutely linked. You cannot be spiritually healthy by at the same time staying relationally unhealthy. And so I wonder this morning, do you need to do some work in this area of your life? Tomorrow in the staff room, this week with your family, maybe even with a next door neighbor, do you need to do some work in this area? And what would it look like Maybe even just with a friend or a family member that you've come from or with today, to have a quick kind of conversation and prayer before you come to communion. God, we want you we want you to restore this broken relationship and we wanna we wanna do the work. We don't wanna just wait for you to do the work in them. We wanna be a part of this, we wanna partner with you and we're up for Doing the work. I'm going to ask the band to just lead us for a minute and uh, maybe just uh, reflect for a minute or two on what we've talked about and maybe what you need to, to prioritize or do. And then I'm going to jump up and I'll pray and then invite you to come to community.